Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is brought to you by Fangoria.com. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long-form pieces, deep dives, daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria vaults, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com. And as promised, the content of the new issues will forever be print only. If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Fangoria.com. Hello, and welcome to Nightmare University. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry. Um, before we jump into tonight's show, I want to tell you guys that we are about to launch a Patreon in January. And with this, um, first, you get major appreciation for supporting the show in any capacity. But I wanted to do this because I wanted to expand the show. I wanted to do bonus episodes. And the biggest thing that I really was excited about doing is I've had so many people contact me asking for reference lists, um, lists where I actually go through and create like a PDF document where I list every single movie that is referenced in any given episode, as well as all of the books and magazine articles and other reference material. So you can get that for just a couple of bucks through the Patreon. And I'm also launching an entirely new show, which will function as a bonus episode to Nightmare University. And that is called Nightmare University Deep Cuts. And twice a month, I will be deep diving into horror films that you've probably never even heard of before. These are ones that are hard to find, lesser known, or in some cases have never even really been released um, in a large capacity. And so really kind of deep diving in on not just the films themselves, but what happened, why have you not heard of these? Um, because a lot of times they have really fascinating backstories behind them. So if you're looking for like hard to find horror, forgotten gems, things like that, definitely check out our Patreon. We will have the link for it up on all of our socials, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, um, Nightmare University's socials. And so definitely check it out and uh, give Deep Cuts a listen. We'll be doing two episodes of that a month. And again, thank you immensely for the support. I am honored by all of the listeners that we have on this show. I, I am so excited every single week when I see how many people are checking out this show and just honored to have all of you guys here with us. Um, so tonight's episode is one that I have long had kind of an, an emotional turmoil with, and that is H.P. Lovecraft. And I have to start by saying I am a massive Lovecraft fan. He hits all of the things that I love about horror, the elements of insanity and the elements of kind of not being able to gauge what is your own reality versus what is your own mental um, creations. I love his infusion of aquatic monsters. I love his infusion of otherworldly things. And I love his concept of the idea of fate, that um, our lives are being controlled by these kind of otherworldly gods, be them cosmic gods or the deep ones. And that these things are ultimately in control and that there's nothing we can do about it. And we might as well just surrender to the fact that we're going to go insane. There is so much about Lovecraft's work that I find tantalizing. And it really does hit a lot of my horror sweet spots. But at the same time, Lovecraft himself is a known misogynist, xenophobe, anti-Semite, like the man just had a lot of issues going on. And so I have always kind of battled this. Do I expose my students to him or do I just kind of avoid him because he did have all of these things that made him quite frankly, an asshole. And so is this something where I talk about the importance of Lovecraft and what he has done for horror, or do I just kind of overlook him when I'm going over my horror history? And so what I have come to do at this point is I include him in my lessons. I still talk about the importance of Lovecraft and everything that he did at the time and how he kind of changed the face of horror. And then I still show Reanimator and other great movies like that. But I always posit it in this, yeah, we know that this guy was not a good person across the board, that he had a lot of things. And it wasn't even, I've heard people say that it was for the time period, like, oh, well, these were all written in the 1920s and everybody was a little bit more racist in the 1920s. It goes further than that. This guy was even racist for the 1920s. Um, and the misogyny 
and this is where it becomes problematic, is a lot of it becomes infused into his work. Lovecraft did not write female characters. He just didn't. If they are there, they are there as secondary characters. They are very, just there as kind of wall hangings to kind of keep the story moving along. And you do see the xenophobia and his racism come through in so many of his works. Um, he uses racist terminology in a couple of his works, and some of them um, he outright calls groups that he thinks are in some way, you know, changing the world, not for the good. And so some of the terminology that he uses is just really abhorrent and problematic for me as a professor trying to figure out, do I teach these important historical things or do I just completely overlook them? Because I personally have problems separating the man from the monster from his own art. And so, unfortunately, I have no answers to that in this episode. I only know that I myself have come to terms with it by saying, yeah, he was an asshole. He clearly had a lot of problems. But at the same time, he has become so important for horror that it's something that we can't overlook. We have to acknowledge both who he was as a person, that he did have these things and that they are prevalent in some of his work, but we also have to acknowledge the great impact that his work has had on horror history, both through literature and in the film world, television, in um, video games, in RPGs, in geek culture across the board. Lovecraft has been a crucial horror icon. And so we kind of just have to say he's important and what he made is important, but we know he had these issues and just acknowledge it all and get it out on the table as we proceed. That said, I have brought in an absolutely phenomenal guest and we are going to celebrate the art of Lovecraft, the amazing mythos he created, and talk a little bit more about how we ourselves try to separate his beliefs from what happened in his art and kind of how the two um, blend together in certain regards. And so my guest tonight is Graham Skipper. I love Graham Skipper. We geek out about Star Trek all the time, but I also know he is a huge Lovecraft fan, just as I am. And um, when I'd spoken with him about Lovecraft at parties um, before and, and about how he kind of navigates between who Lovecraft was as a person and his art form, I knew immediately that Graham would be perfect for this. Graham is an actor. I first met Graham while he was playing um, doc Dr. Herbert West in Stuart Gordon's stage musical version of Reanimator, Reanimator, the musical here in Los Angeles. And after that, Graham and I went on to work on a number of film projects together. And he's just all around a fantastic brain when it comes to Lovecraft and all of his stories. Um, so thank you so much for joining us tonight. And let's dive into Lovecraft. <laughs> Welcome back to Nightmare University, and I am here today with my friend Graham Skipper. Graham, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, thanks for having me. So as soon as I knew I wanted to do a Lovecraft episode, I immediately thought of you. And you will definitely back at some point when I somehow am able to make Star Trek horror. It's and totally fit scary. It in, because yeah. I know like you and I definitely geek out on Star <laughs> Trek a lot. Um, but we're also big Lovecraft fans. So what? how did you first find Lovecraft, like all the way back? <laughs> so. So, uh, funnily enough, so I discovered Lovecraft when I was in college, um, and uh, I had heard the Metallica song, The Call of Cthulhu, mm -hmm. and I was like, what the hell does that mean? And I, I you know, got on the internet, and I looked around and said, oh, it's based on a Lovecraft story. I'd never heard of Lovecraft. I knew the film Reanimator, but somehow, like, I hadn't really ever gone, oh, well, you know, Lovecraft is this author. I don't know. I hadn't really, you know, dove into it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So then I went and I went in search of of The Call of Cthulhu, the Lovecraft story. And I remember at the time, this was back in 2001, um, I mean, it was almost impossible to find, you know, Lovecraft anywhere. Yeah. Look, uh, you know, in all sorts of like different secondhand bookstores. And I eventually found... Uh, a, it's almost like a pamphlet. Like it wasn't even like a full book, but it was just the story, The Call of Cthulhu. And mm -hmm. I found that, and then I found a book called The Cthulhu Mythos, um, which was 
uh, a compilation of stories in the Lovecraft universe, but they weren't actually Lovecraft stories. Um, and at the time, I was a little confused by that. I didn't really know, you know, what mm -hmm. that was. Um, but I just devoured them, and I was so excited about it, and I just, it really spoke to me. Um, and it was from there that I, I discovered the greater works of Lovecraft, and then, like, the movies we're going to be talking about today, uh -huh. um, uh, you know, and, and, and even then revisiting older movies uh, that, that I discovered were Lovecraft adaptations, and I became a super fan. Nice. And then talk a little bit about your connection to Reanimator and Stuart Gordon. How did you first get involved in the Reanimator musical? Yeah, so um, back in New York, I lived in New York for 10 years, uh, and I used to do... Um, Me too. Where uh, were you? I was mostly in Hell's Kitchen. I was like 49th and 10th. Oh, shit. That's where the Fango office. We were 49th and 9th um, next to the, the food emporium oh, there. Oh, no shit. Yeah, really? that was the old Fango that's office. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, was, okay, amazing. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay, wow. Uh, funny, really funny. Um, yeah, I lived at 49th and 10th for many years, and then a little time in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. kind of around. But anyway, um, when I was there... Um, uh, lost track of what I was saying. Uh, oh, how'd you get involved in reanimating the musical? Thank you very much. No yeah. problem. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, yes, I was. I used to do a lot of comedy in New York, and it was through that uh, that I became friends with George Wint. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, George knew Stuart Gordon from old Chicago days on like the Organic Theater Company. Mm -hmm. um, and so George was involved in the Reanimator musical, and George recommended me to come and audition to play Herbert West. Um, and so I, uh, uh, flew out and, uh, went and read for it and I got it. Uh, and, and I, you know, was then deeply, uh, entrenched in Stuart Gordon's world. But yes, yeah, Stuart directed, uh, the reanimator of the musical. Of course, him and Dennis Paoli also wrote, uh, the book for the musical, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, lots of people from the original, like special effects crew. We had John Carl Beekler, uh, Tony Dublin, John Nolan. Uh, they all came in and did all the special effects for the musical itself. Um, and uh, and yeah, that's that's how I got involved. It really was just a recommendation, and then I came out and sang a little bit and, and got it. it that's was fantastic. That is fantastic. Um, as you, and I do have a couple questions about the mm -hmm. musical up at the top. As you guys were approaching the musical, how was it decided kind of how close to go along with the movie or how far to push away from it as you were kind of converting um, the movie to a more theatrical musical style? You know, Stuart always approached it from a perspective of, of this is its own thing. Mm -hmm. You know, let's not be beholden to what the movie was. Um, and, and so I know that like my tactic on it was, cause obviously I knew the movie really well, but I didn't want to just do an imitation of Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. So I purposefully didn't watch the movie through most of the rehearsal process. I, you know, approached it strictly from, you know, this is what's in the book or, or, or you know, this is what, what's in, in the script in front of me. I'm going to build this character from the ground up. Um, you know, I know some of the iconic trappings of the character. I know he wears his shirt and tie this way, he wears his glasses this way, you know, this is what he looks like. Um, you know, but but otherwise, I, I was really coming from a place of just, you know, from the ground up, who is this guy? Um, and then towards the end, like a week or two before we opened, um, then we all went back and we watched it and we wanted to make sure that we got some of those really iconic moments perfect. Mm -hmm. So like, you bastard, you know, how does he, how does David Gale say that? Okay, I want to make sure to say it that way. Or, you know, um, uh, the, the look when I, I sing, you know, I gave him life, Yeah. you know, where am I holding the syringe? Just little moments like that, that, that do tie it to the film. Um, but then otherwise, you know, it was really its own thing. And, and Stuart was very much about exploration and the characters and, and any time that he would, you know, sort of course correct anything, it was really coming from a place of, I don't think the character would do that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it was also fun to, uh, you know, Stuart would often like talk about, you know, well, okay, in this moment, Meg, when you're walking downstage, if I were filming this, I would have the camera over your shoulder, you know, but obviously we can't do that. So how do we build that same tension with how you're walking, you know? And it was coming from that place of like, this is what I would do if I were filming it. I can't do that. How do we achieve the same thing? Um, but of course, you know, Stuart originally came from a theatrical theater, background, background, you know, he, yeah. he uh, created the organic theater company and, and spent years and years in the theater. And, and so I think that, um, that really informed him being able to sort of readapt his own stuff. Um, and, uh, 
and and I, I think it you know went off really well. I mean that was one of the the things that I was most proud of was that you know my Herbert West was not Jeffrey Combs's Herbert West. Yeah. And 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 that was my main thing that I wanted to achieve is I wanted to give him something new and I wanted to to you know have it be just as authentic um, but different. So I wanted to start our discussion looking at um, around 2004, 2005, because this is where we really had what I'm going to call the Lovecraft geek boom, (laughs) which is um, a weird thing um, to to even kind of look back on now, because now Lovecraft is so ingrained in the culture that we all, if you are in any way kind of engaged in horror, most of us have some idea who Lovecraft is. We know Cthulhu. It's something that's kind of become infused. But prior to around 2004, 2005, as you mentioned, it was hard to find. Like if you were in the know in the horror world, you could be like, oh, The Haunted Palace uh, Mm -hmm. by Vincent Price Mm -hmm. or The Dunwich Horror. But uh, it was not something that I consider to be kind of as prevalent in geek culture prior to that. So what we had in 2004 and 2005 was a couple of different media projects kind of finding Lovecraft. Um, and so we see him kind of become infused into D&D. There was a couple of different um, role-playing games that were released with Lovecraft. Yep. We started hearing rumors that there might be some larger movies at play. And then all of a sudden, Cthulhu is everywhere. Suddenly, you can find stuffed Cthulhu. I know. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah, it was weird because it seemed to happen overnight where one day it was me and, you know, kind of being like, yeah, I read Lovecraft when I was in college, but he's definitely not something that is in um, kind of the public geek psyche. And then overnight, there's a Cthulhu calendar, and here's a Cthulhu uh, stuffed doll, and, you know, and video games. It was, I remember um, people were always trying to figure out how to, to kind of do the video games. And so since around that time, we've seen Lovecraft come more into play on screen. 100%. Yeah, like prior to that, it was definitely... Um, Stuart Gordon was doing it well. And then we see kind of like uh, smaller ones where like the curse from 1987, Mm, I think, um, was color out of space. And then we have, um, you know, the haunted palace going back. And there were a couple other ones throughout history that I'm kind of like, oh, I see what you did there. But they definitely were few and far between. And then we have this Lovecraft boom happen. It's so weird. I remember remember walking into a store one day and seeing, like you said, a stuffed plush Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I really noticed notice like oh wait a minute that's kind of weird yeah you know just remembering how hard it was to find anything Lovecraft you know and Stuart even talks about how just finding the story of reanimator to read he had to like go to the library of Chicago and like rent the only copy that like in existence you know of this thing I think a major factor in the boom is Guillermo del Toro Mm -hmm. because I I think think so as well you know I think that he because um, around that time, it would have been around time of like Devil's Backbone. Yep, and right? we had gotten Devil's Backbone. We were just starting Pan's Labyrinth, mm-hmm. and so I assume he kind of opened up the conversation of yeah. this is what I want to do. Yeah, like it must have been like in the media tour and mm-hmm. like stuff like that of him sort of just talking about it. And he's always been very open about talking talking about his Lovecraft influences. Um, and, and somehow I, I I think that that just because he was so sort of uh, pop culturey you know, popular at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like he's sort of a major reason for that. But also, yes, you're totally right. The Call of Cthulhu RPG um, board game, you know, uh, uh, the RPG game, I think that was really popular. And I think a lot of yeah. people saw that big artwork and and were like, oh, what's that? And yeah, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I remember then seeing like Cthulhu dice come quickly after mm-hmm. and then Cthulhu floggins and things yeah. like that. Well, and it's such a big mythos you know that there's so much to mine from that i think that if you get people just starting to be interested in it Mm -hmm. then they're gonna go down this rabbit hole right uh, because how can you not so let's talk a little bit about kind of the elements that make up Lovecraftian horror. Because we hear that thrown around a lot. Like, oh, it's Lovecraftian. Even things that are not directly Lovecraftian, like we're going to talk about In the Mouth of Madness mm-hmm. in a little bit, which is not a direct Lovecraft story, but everyone is um, prone to call it Lovecraftian. Oh, for sure. Um, and it definitely is. So what, in your mind, defines Lovecraftian? I think that there are um, kind of two major elements uh, mm-hmm. that that are are generally present. This isn't necessarily true for every single story, um, but uh, there's the element of madness mm-hmm. um, of of the characters uh, being so affected by what they're experiencing that they go insane. Yep. Um, and then there's this I- idea of of cosmic 
entities, these cosmic gods um, that are sort of, uh, uh, you know, controlling the universe. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of basically dark, insane gods that are controlling our lives. Um, and I think those are kind of the two major elements of it. I mean, obviously, there are tonal things like there's xenophobia is a major kind of theme that runs through a lot of his Which work. Which I definitely want to touch on yeah. in a bit. His like misogyny and xenophobia. And there's a lot of kind of like, how do you separate that? But we'll get there. Uh, and, and then and then I guess I will just throw in too, I think there's this idea of like a cosmic helplessness. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, that we, it, it's almost nihilistic. I mean, there's no no hope. We are alone in the universe except for these great gods that are only bent on destroying our lives and causing us to go insane and destroying us. Totally true. And there's a lot of politics within them. And like, even when I've read some of the Lovecraft stories, it's it's mind numbing trying to figure out because you've got the old ones and then the cosmic ones and yeah, then there's, there's the great ones in there. And, and then yeah. there's the deep ones. And yeah, so there's like hierarchy of the gods. And I love looking at some of the, uh, the geeky charts I see pop uh-huh. up online where somebody's like actually broken down yeah. the political structure of all of these different gods. And then you have the Yog Sagoths, which are kind of, yeah. yeah, which are kind of like the, the dog. Dogs of yeah, the, they're, they're like like, a, like uh, almost like angel dogs, yeah. you know, that are kind of like the uh, the henchmen that are mm-hmm. you know rolling around down here on Earth. Yeah. So those are the and that's kind of um, some of the other tropes that I see in Lovecraft come out right there is these um, creatures so wild you can't imagine them, which mm-hmm. he uses in his his stories a lot, which I'll get into time. when we're talking about filming, um, where he'll be like, oh this thing, oh this this is a yog sagoth. Well, what's it look like? Well, it's so crazy you can't even imagine it, but it's got a lot of teeth and it's jaw unhinged and things like and that. Then, oh, it's just too horrifying even to too describe. Too horrifying to discuss, yeah. yeah. So you get a good amount of that in there. Um, and then also, I mean, obviously what most people associate with Lovecraft, Ian, and part of the reason that I find myself so attracted to him is this kind of um, aquatic horror. And by no means are all of his stories set there. Actually, when you look at the bulk of Lovecraft's work, I'd say the majority of them are not. Um, but that said, he does have these particular ones, Dagon in the Mouth of Madness, the Cthulhu mythos, um, that are kind of infused with this seaside um, something rising from the deep and mm-hmm. walking on land and infusing us, us becoming part of the sea um, phenomenon happening. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a definite like interesting subset of of his work, and I I think that you know obviously the Call of Cthulhu is you know his most famous story, and mm-hmm. that's you know kind of the main like aquatic you know god that you know is in, in he's. What is the line? He's he's a, a, a sleep and dead really. Yeah, you know, sleep I, I can't and dreaming. remember sleeping and dreaming. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but I, I think that it's it's uh, you know again if you think about when Lovecraft was alive, you know, back in the twenties when he's writing this, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the ocean was still you know a largely uncharted place. Completely. You know? um, and and so I think that he's really tapping into. You know, like he said, it's the fear of the unknown. It was tapping into the deep dark underneath the ocean, which is the same as the deep dark out in space. Yep. You know, which is the same as Antarctica, which at the time, you know, who the hell knew what was in Antarctica? Yeah. Um, and and so I think that that's really you know why why I think he focuses primarily on either underwater or out in space is because those are the dark depths that we just don't know what's down there, mm-hmm. and he's tapping into that kind of primal fear in a way that like. You know, Poe certainly wasn't. No, know? Poe was much more kind of the the madness around you. Yeah. And I do have to say, like, when I was looking at the two of them, there were a couple of stories that I was kind of like, okay, I can see kind of the similarities. I can see, you know, what was in vogue at the time period. They both used um, a decent amount of first person. The mm-hmm. idea of the unreliable narrator of slowly going insane throughout the course of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, they're like what the the kind of crux of their stories are is so vastly different. Like, insanity is still there. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it is the difference of, you know, uh, that which is man-made or that which is right here uh-huh. or death feeling like the imposition, this kind of unseen death thing, as opposed to giant monster gods are controlling our every life, so you might as well just abandon yourself to insanity. Now that you know that, there's no hope. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think you're totally right, and I think too, I think Poe is better at writing characters that mm-hmm. you care about. Um, yes. Lovecraft doesn't really uh, so much write characters as he writes moments. You know, he writes interesting moments, interesting, like, creatures, um, big bombastic endings, mm-hmm. um, but you don't really ever care so much about about the people that are involved because you know that ultimately they're going to die or they're going to go 
crazy. Yep. Um, but you know, that's not what the story's about. But I do think that um, that is why it's so difficult to adapt Lovecraft to the screen is because he doesn't really give you much to work with as far as characters go. Totally. So let's talk a little bit about that. So Lovecraft is notoriously difficult to adapt for screen. So much so that I can count just as many projects have been announced to be um, Lovecraftian titles have been announced and have fallen apart as ones that have actually gotten made. Um, So let's talk a little bit about why Lovecraft is so difficult for screen. I think that perhaps one of the biggest ones is just the sheer scope. Um, whereas Poe, it tends to be self-contained. It tends to be more um, earthly fears. Lovecraft, we've got giant sky gods, right. and so and how it manifests itself within people. But what else do you think it might be? Well, I think that it's partly that. Um, I think that it's partly uh, just the lack of characters. You know, like when you're watching a film, you have to have characters that you're attached to, um, mm-hmm. and and Lovecraft just doesn't give you that. And so I think that people that are trying to be super strictly, you know, adhering to the actual text, then you end up with a film that doesn't actually have characters that that you really care, you know, that anything is going to happen to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, you know, obviously then there's the element of almost everything in Lovecraft's stories he describes as being undescribable. Yep. You know, so how are you going to show that? And I think that the best Lovecraft adaptations are the ones that, either show you in a totally insane way that are just really well done and and you know are are inventive and interesting or are the ones that that just give you a hint of something um of something bigger there's a a great one of my favorite lovecraft stories is um the shunned house Mm -hmm. and uh and and i think this is a good example of of the sort of essence of lovecraft and what i think the best lovecraft adaptations do at the end of the shunned house, uh, you know, the guy goes in the basement and he's like digging in the basement and he ends up hitting this, this like weird, like glowing thing sticking out of the ground. And essentially what he discovers is that that's the very, very tip of the tail of a monster that's underneath the city. Oh, wow. And, and that is very scary. And it's something very concrete where you don't need to see what that monster is. But if you see just the tip of the tail and you know that that's that, then, then that's a that's a frightening thing, um, and so I think that like you know we're going to talk about in the mouth of madness. You know, you just see a a, a tentacle flickering mm-hmm. underneath the door, and that's kind of all you need. Um, you know, we're like in the thing. You know, like we, we talk about Carpenter's The Thing, which I think is another sort of Lovecraftian very much so. type of thing. You know, you you see some roiling tentacles like you know just out of frame, and you're imagining what is this thing that I'm not seeing right now, and that's the essence of Lovecraft. But that opens the question of, is this part of the reason that he's more difficult? Because as a giant studio who's about to dump $100 million into this project, it does the audience suddenly want to see the whole monster? Which brings um, yeah. another example. The music of Eric Zahn mm-hmm. is another one that people point to, and they're like, this would make an amazing story. And the whole setup of it is... Um, this university student, which is Lovecraft's kind of go-to character, is renting a place from a vinyl violinist. And every night he hears this crazy music. He hears the violin, and then he hears these other tones that are unlike anything he's ever heard. It's like music from another world. And what he eventually realized is that there is a giant void-like gateway to another dimension just outside of his apartment window and if the guy the guy has to play his violin every night to keep the monsters from coming through in the actual story we don't get much we just get that there is this giant black void gateway and that there are monsters on the other side so right, but how do you communicate that visually yeah like that's so hard yeah it's absolutely difficult and as a studio exec who would be dumping a hundred million dollars in my first thing is well we have to go into the black void if we have opened this up and said there is a hole full of monsters on the outside of the window. We have to go in there. And then suddenly this becomes this crazy thing to embody and try to figure out how to do. It's a lot much more to execute than just seeing the tip of the tail. Mm -hmm. So it it makes him more difficult to adapt to screen. So let's talk a little bit about Del Toro's project. Mm -hmm. Um, Because this is the one that when most people look at and they're like Lovecraftian movie, 
that is kind of always the one that got away. Have you ever read the script? I have read the script. Me too. Yes, and it's a great script. Yes. But I can totally see where the studio would have said, hell no. Me too, (laughs) Um, as well. And it's a crazy thing because I want it to get made more than anybody. Um, But at this of course, we're talking about At the Mountains of Madness. At the Mountains of Madness. Um, This is a script that Del Toro had shopped around Hollywood for a long time. It had gotten kind of pushed and backed and all these different studios were considering it. And Tom Cruise was signed on to star in it. Tom Cruise was signed on to not read like a Tom Cruise no, project. No, it does not. Um, it reads massive. Like oh, I can, yeah. it's like over a hundred million dollar project. Easily. Like, um, it's huge. It is the whole story is um, about a, a fleet of ships that sail to Antarctica to um, kind of explore. And once they get there, they discover that everything's slightly off. Like the penguins are mutant. Nothing seems to well, work well. They discover well. a city. There's like a, yeah. s- this ancient city that's somehow in in Antarctica, built out of stone and weird metal with, with and, a non-Euclidean geometry. Yes, yeah. and which in itself is insane to think of. And it's got these weird um, alien sculptures all. All over it and these sculptures throughout the town of mm-hmm. weird monstery looking things and it seems to be vacant yeah and and then if, of course they as they go deeper and deeper into the ruins of the city um then then they discover uh, these these cosmic entities in addition to the albino penguins which are scary enough but but um they discover these cosmic entities and discover that there is an ancient cosmic god that's going to be rising up and tom cruise has got to stop it yep and, you know <laughs> and so the movie itself um it's Giant. It is such a giant movie, but at the same time, I remember that um, hearing, at least this might be hearsay, but I remember this being the predominant Hollywood rumor, was that because this movie was so expensive, the studios all were requesting that he get it down to a PG-13, which does, mm, interesting as a marketing thing, it does open up your audiences sure. significantly. And honestly, you kind of could do that. I mean, it's you don't, you know, I, I, I guess there is the language aspect of it like you would i'm sure be screaming some expl- you know some expletives you know yeah. when you're in that situation but aside from that i mean there's not there's no sex in it you know there's no you know the the violence in it is largely psychological he, um, in his script he definitely had copious amounts of violence there was transformations there were things getting eaten yeah. it was like it was a heavy heavy definitely. yeah you're script. right yeah there's some like cronenbergian like transformation stuff in there which as a lovecraft fan makes me go yes that is exactly what i yeah. want if i do not see tentacle monsters transforming then why is it even lovecraft but at the same time that bumped with the studios it was a crazy expensive movie to begin with well it wasn't also one of the other uh things that that I heard that they didn't like was that there were no female characters. It was all male. Um, it was 100% male because it was the sailors arriving on Antarctica and then there's not a single female character. And, and granted, it is set in like the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So... I, I, that that's why it didn't bump for me quite as much because I'm like, well, in the 1920s, I'm not sure that you would have seen a lot of female explorers, you know, on these ships. That said, it could have had female uh, characters, and that's fine. I actually like that the studio pinged on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what was interesting was I, I heard that they demanded a love story. And that gets very difficult. Yes. Because Lovecraft did not write love stories. No. Um, no. Lovecraft barely wrote women. If they're in his char- oh, in his yeah. books, they're very just kind of ancillary. Yeah, yeah. Like in the, in the uh, reanimator story, I think Megan Halsey is just kind of barely mentioned mm-hmm. you know like like yeah he it's it's primarily men but of course that's lovecraft so <laughs> let's dive into that for a little bit so um lovecraft known misogynist mm-hmm. really did not like women at all known xenophobe and that comes out in his work i mean the the misogyny comes out in the fact that he has no female characters yeah. at all and they're all just kind of background um, but the xenophobia comes out even more to the point where I hesitate when I'm recommending um, Lovecraft to people because he does use words like, um, and pardon me here, mongoloid and mongrel come out oh, yeah. a good amount. Um, and, and the xenophobia and kind of just his racism and fear of everyone who is not an upstanding white male in New England really does come out. It really does. I mean, you and there's stuff that's, like you said, that's shocking even today. I mean, there's... Um, in in the horror at Red Hook, um, which was part of his sort of cycle of stories that he wrote while living in Brooklyn, which mm-hmm. he hated. Um, he got married and, and had to move to Brooklyn for her, and he hated it because he was surrounded by mm-hmm. all these different kinds of people. Yeah, that's um, where the anti-Semitism kind mm-hmm. of comes out yeah, as well. Which, oh, and he was an anti-Semite. He was an anti-Semite, yeah. but married to a Jewish woman. Which was, yeah, it, yeah. It, like just a confusing, horrible person to begin with. Yeah, um, but but like in horror at Red Hook, you know, he talks about something like, oh, the the... 
the yellow orientals, you oh know, goodness. yellow squat orientals. And it's, it's really interesting. I mean, he's just, uh, he's a racist. Um, There's like no way around it. Yeah. And, and I think that that's probably partly why he's able to write such um, scary stories about the great beyond is because man, if it's outside of his, it's, if it's outside of Providence, Rhode Island, like he's scared of it completely you know i i it's it's and it's hard to read and you know it's tough to like you know especially today mm-hmm. um to to look back and to sort of uh you know qualify that with with well you know it was a different time or whatever because even for his time he was a pretty intense he was racist. a pretty intense racist for his time too yeah you know so that's kind of hard to to i don't know reconcile um as a fan of his is to be able to kind of look past that and to try to get at the greater themes of what he's writing because I think he is an important author and I think that his his sort of legacy is important to mm-hmm. to you know to to have a part as a part of today's discourse but at the same time we we have to acknowledge that like this was the person that he was completely um, so I don't know it's tough and that's something that I do not by any means have answers for in this podcast yeah. by any stretch because it's something that I myself still battle where I do consider him to be very important to horror historically and I do consider his stories to be great but there is this difficulty in separating the man from the monster mm-hmm. knowing that you know a lot of his stories were coming from this fear um, this unfounded even in the 1920s fear of every other person in the world yeah. um, but somehow being able to create good art like I still have no solutions on that and it's something that I still pause on every single time I recommend Lovecraft or every single time I say, oh, I'm a Lovecraft fan. I still have this kind of pit in my stomach going, mm-hmm. oh God, he was such an asshole. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. I, mm-hmm. I, I have the same feelings about it and I don't know you know, what to say about it You know, aside from just, I, I think that at a certain point with some artists, you, you have to be able to separate that. And and I think time has given us you know, the fact that he's not like writing this right now. Yeah, I think if he was doing this right now, we would be far more. At least I would be yeah. far more inclined to say like, forget it. Yeah, you're, you're a bastard. I'm not. Yeah, there's read some your thing, stuff, but but I mean, you know, like like, well, yeah, I, I don't know. It's 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 really hard to qualify without saying, you know, without seeming like you're sort of supporting his racism because mm-hmm. that's certainly not what it is. But um, but but it's it's just sort of interesting to look at it and to think his racism and xenophobia influenced his writing style, which has become something very, very important to to horror literature yes. as a whole. Um, so kind of figuring out where we go from here, what is it about Stuart Gordon? Because he is the one that most people look at and say, okay, Stuart was able to get Lovecraft. Stuart understood it, um, still does, and was able to kind of take what was Lovecraft and convert it to screen. And so what is it about Stewart's work um, and Dennis Paoli as well, um, and Yuzna is obviously involved in that whole um, group as well. What is it about those projects that is Lovecraft done right? I think that um, Stewart is unafraid to, uh, to adapt Lovecraft liberally. Um, you know, he's, he's, He's not afraid to just take one little, you know, element, a, a single, you know, thing from the story and then build his own completely new world out of it. Um, and I think that you have to do that. You mm-hmm. have to not be beholden strictly to the text. Yeah. Um, like with Reanimator, you know, Reanimator, the the stories, there's like, I think, eight chapters of it, eight or ten chapters. And, and it spans like decades. Um, you know, and so what Stewart did was he went and he pulled out, uh, uh, you know, okay, well, Dr. Hill holds his head, head in his hands in this one. And in this one, you know, there, there's a character, Dean Halsey, and in this one, he's a medical student. And then he was able to take those little bits and put them together and also make it, you know, a comedic film. Um, and I think just Stewart's like total fearlessness in terms of being able to adapt something uh, and and not feel too precious about the source material yeah. is exactly why his films work. And, and he did that in all of his uh, Lovecraft adaptations. I mean, he did that in From Beyond. 
He did that in Dagon, uh, you know, and and he even did that in, in Castle Freak, which yeah. is an extremely loose adaptation. Um, but but I, I think that that's why he's successful is he just he he really one hundred percent does his own thing with it. But he's able to distill the one essential element of that story to keep in place uh, to make it truly Lovecraft. And so let's dive into our film recommendations because when we um, were talking about kind of like what Lovecraft films we would immediately recommend, we came up with a list of six and like four of them are, are Stewart. Uh-huh. Um, so let's start with Reanimator, which was his first of the bunch, mm-hmm. 1985. Yeah, his first film. I love this one so much because even though that it is um, truly Lovecraft, like he he's like totally borrowing from the story and pulling lots of it. It is still so 80s in its construction. It's coloring, um, the way that it's shot, the humor, um, the splastic nature of it. Um, and it did become a landmark film in the 1980s. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it I, I think too, um, because he was coming straight out of a theater world um, when he made Reanimator, uh, you'll notice I just watched it a, m- a month ago. We showed it in 35 at the Alamo Draft House mm-hmm. here. Um, and it was, I hadn't watched it in a couple years. And it was interesting to watch it and see how everything's in these big, long, wide takes where he just lets the action happen. Um, and I think that's part of why I love it so much is that you just get to see these actors acting. Um, you know, and, and even like there's a scene you know, where uh, a, a spoiler, a dead cat has come back to life and and they're chasing it around the room. Mm-hmm. Well, they're chasing shadows. They're not, they don't have an animatronic cat running around, but it plays so well because of how Stuart is, is uh, uh, lighting it theatrically, having a swinging light so you can't always see, you know, what's happening. And, mm-hmm. and then having, uh, you know, Herbert and Dan, you know, like like playing off of that so well. Um, it's just such a great scene. And, and I think the whole film... Uh, is is uh is is really special for that and so then he went just a year later he went from reanimator to from beyond which is a vastly different movie mm-hmm. um whereas reanimator was very over the top like uh, tongue-in-cheek humor um very splat sticky from beyond is, is weird it's super weird it's super weird very gooey very slimy yes i mean and that one feels very true to lovecraft as well because we're reaching another realm we're doing stuff with science um that doesn't necessarily make sense but going with it and there's like a weird sexual element that enters uh-huh, here as well uh-huh. yeah there's some weird sexy stuff um you know, when I was talking about how to sort of show the unshowable stuff mm-hmm. um, in in Lovecraft's work, I think that they do a really great job in From Beyond because they just go balls to the wall yep. with the Dr. Pretorius design, you know, and and have this creature that is really unlike anything that I've ever seen in a movie. Completely. Um, you know, and again, that's that fearlessness of Stuart Gordon to say, like, yeah, let's show this giant sort of penis demon. I mean, that's kind of what he is. He is a penis um, demon. <laughs> you yeah, know, and, that totally makes sense. I mean, and, and, the whole thing is very phallic with, like, what's coming out of their heads, ooh, and, yeah. and Crampton shows up, and then it just gets weird. And Crampton's in a dominatrix outfit. Yeah, and, and yeah. humping burned dude, and yeah, yeah, it gets weird. It gets super weird. I love From Beyond. No, I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. It is a blast of a movie, so. Um, and then let's see here. Next one, I guess in order would be Castle Freak. Sure. Yeah. Castle Freak came. 1995. Okay. Yeah. And that's based off the outsiders, which I admit I have never read that short story. It's a really cool short story. So essentially the, the, the outsider short story is that there's a guy who is, uh, in, in the basement of this dungeon and he's trying to, uh, get out of. The, this basement mm-hmm. and as he's escaping all the other people that are there they're running away saying oh there's a monster there's a monster so you know he's freaking out going oh my god i gotta get away from the monster you know this mo- dungeon monster mm-hmm. and he's running 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 and trying to get out and he gets up to the very top and he gets up to the top room he's about to leave and he see, finally looks in a mirror and realizes he's the monster oh wow yeah and it's very simple very short story and as when he was making castle freak as the story goes, Stuart walked into um, uh, to Charles Band's office, and behind him there was a poster, and it like had a sexy lady and like this monster, and it was called Castle Freak. He goes, "Oh, what's that?" And Charles said, "Oh, it was just an idea we came up with. We don't have a script or anything. You want to make it?" He was like, "Okay." And he goes, "Yeah, just make sure it has a castle and a freak in it." Yeah, <laughs> that's that's all. That is so Stuart Band. I mean, that's the Corman yeah. model. But yeah. yeah, it's so Stuart. Make sure it has a castle and a freak. Or, sorry, it's Charles, Charles Band. Band. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, and but but that's when he sort of drew on the idea of the outsider 
because you know the 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 freak and Castle Freak is kind of sympathetic. Um, it's a really interesting movie, and I, I know, always saw him as like Hunchback of Notre totally, Dame, where it's totally like just this guy. He just wants friends. Yeah, <laughs> he wants friends. He wants sex too. Yeah. Um, uh, but he. Um, you know, it's 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 coming out of this abuse, this horrible abuse that he undergoes, and that we, you know, essentially are introduced to him enduring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a cool movie, um, and and I know they're remaking it. I don't know anything about the remake, um, but uh, that's through Fangoria, Fangoria yeah. our parent company. Yes, yeah. So I'm excited about that. So hopefully, I, we'll find out some more soon. Yes, um, but yeah, I, uh, I I like that movie a lot, and I think that it's often um, sort of overlooked uh, by people. Excellent. And so then after that, um, I think that the next one would probably be In the Mouth of Madness. That was late 90s. Late yeah. 90s. And we um, talked about that one a bit at the top about how it is so just infused with the idea of madness and kind of the Lovecraftian world where it's um, a gentleman who has been hired to kind of find this author that is missing and he's a best-selling author. And on his journey, he ends up kind of being transported to this town, this mysterious town where everything is slightly off and he can't really get back out of it. And he's just trapped there as he realizes that the town is kind of based off the author's stories. And so it's almost as if the author made the town, but at the same time, the townspeople are slowly kind of transforming into something else, which is why it is so Lovecraftian in that regard, because that feels very Dagon, where the whole town is transforming into sea monsters. It feels very um, in the mouth of madness, where the further he gets closer to the city, things like the penguins mm-hmm. start changing. It also feels Shadow of Ensmith, which is totally. kind of the the well, well, main part. And, well, and then you have you know sort of this extra dimensional idea that that towards the end of the film, you know, when he and finally encounters the author, and you sort of talk about you know the uh, the the these extra dimensional gods that he's trying to please mm-hmm. and trying to bring about through his work. You know, it's all total Lovecraftian stuff, and I really. I love this movie. I'm yeah. going to say it right now. This is my favorite John Carpenter movie. Mine as well. Really? Yes. Oh, Amazing. my God. Yeah. I oh, mean, great. Like, yeah. I, I, as I've mentioned before, slashers, I love. I will watch them over any other type of movie any day. But as for like my crux of horror, the yeah. weirder and the more monster-laden yes. and the more Cronenbergian, yes. the better. So yeah, In the Mouth of Man nice. is for me all the way. Yeah, I um, yeah, highly, highly recommend this one. Uh, a, a lot of people overlook it. I just think it's a really fantastic movie. Mm-hmm, completely. Um, and so then let's go to Dagon. And I'm going to start with a weird story for Dagon okay. that I absolutely love. Um, so I was teaching um, at Hunter College back about 10 years ago. This is when I still lived in New York City. And I was showing Dagon because I was teaching horror film history and I was doing a lesson on um, Lovecraft and out of all of the Lovecraft movies I decided to show Dagon because I felt that it leans the most into the mythos Mm. Um, like reanimator is definitely you know it's kind of the loose story same with Castle Freak, same with From Beyond, but Dagon, like, you really get a feel for kind of this god, the cult, the way that it's infusing the town, the insanity and everything. Like, it feels really true to Lovecraft for me. So I was showing Dagon, so I'm queuing it up, and uh, I've got it up on the giant screen, and this man walks past my classroom, and he leans his head in, and he goes, showing Dagon, huh? And I said, yeah, I'd never met this person before. And he goes, I wrote that. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. I work in the library in the writing center. My name's Dennis Paoli. Oh, and my that God. is how I fucking met Dennis oh, Paoli. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had no idea he even worked there. I knew he lived in New York City because I'd so seen funny. him at Fango conventions, but I'd never met him. And he just happened to be walking past um, through the film wing wow. as I was queuing up his movie. What a weird small world. Yeah, I love and that. I made him oh stick God. around and talk about the film. Wow. So. Yeah, it was crazy. That's so. so cool. So yeah, Dagon. I love it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's definitely the most uh, uh, Lovecraft mythosy of mm-hmm. Stewart's movies. Um, I I really like this movie a lot. Unfortunately, the CGI in the movie is is very dated. It has not aged well. I watched it last year in prep for a convention where I was talking about Lovecraft, and I felt the same. Where I loved everything it was doing, but like Squid Dad underwater, right. I was like, oh yeah, that doesn't look yeah, as nice it just, as it did. It just doesn't really work. And unfortunately, that it, and I'm not often like that. Like I'm pretty forgiving. But for whatever reason, I think the the CGI that they did, which I think in 2001 also was probably not very good, mm-hmm. um, it, it just, it kind of takes me out of it. But it's not in the whole movie. Um, and I think that if you can kind of look past that, the ideas in it are really interesting. And, and it really does get to that Lovecraftian idea of 
there is absolutely nothing that you can do but submit to these gods yep. that control our lives. And at the same time in that movie, some of the practical effects were still <sighs> brilliant, like the flaying scene. Oh, my God, I yeah. was like, well, this is still awesome. It was just kind of the larger CGI monsters and her fishy tail mm-hmm. when she's swimming underwater that kind of loses it a little bit. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I often think that that could really use a special edition of somebody mm-hmm. going in and trying to, like, touch up some of that stuff because I think yeah. that could be really cool. But, yeah, the flaying scene, I mean, a man gets his face skinned off of him while he's alive and it is Brutal. horrifying mm-hmm. horrifying it's it's i mean definitely the best scene of the movie um yeah it's it's great and i love the little touch of um you know it's based on the shadow over innsmouth and this it takes place in spain on the coast of spain and the town is named imboca which mm-hmm. means in your mouth um which i always thought was cool Wow. I love that one because that for me is um, the Lovecraftian kind of, it comes on slowly Mm -hmm. because he gets there and he starts meeting townsfolk. And at first he's just like, y'all got big eyes. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, and your hands are weird too. And then he starts seeing like, and the priest's ears are funnier and maybe he doesn't have ears. Oh wait, what's that thing on the side of your face? And it comes on so slowly as you realize what's going on. Yeah, they do a really good job of that because in the story Shadow Over Innsmouth, that's one thing that always kind of feels a little unbelievable is that you know, these are fish people essentially walking around. Yep. But but the narrator is constantly going, well, they just look kind of weird. They just look weird. I mean, he's like a fish person, but he acknowledges them yeah. as fish people from the start. Yeah, and, and in, in Dagon, they, I think, do a pretty good job of, like, having that slow roll of that kind of reveal. Yeah. Um, the, the effects are great. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting movie, and it's never talked about yeah. um, in, in sort of these lists. So the last one that I really wanted to mention um, is one that has not even come out yet. It is due out in January, I January, believe. January, yeah. Um, and this is Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space, um, which I saw at, oh, which one? One of the L.A. festivals here in the fall. Um, and it was absolutely... Absolutely a blast to I can't see. Wait to see it. I, I do have to say, it's still Lovecraft. Like it still um, does not feel like, like there's still something off-putting about it. Like it still feels a little bit different from a standard movie, um, or that might just be Richard Stanley. Um, sure. But that said, it is fun. It is so much fun, um, largely because it's Cage going insane this sure. time, Nicolas Cage. Um, and it is the basic setup of Color Out of Space with a lot of added elements to it. Like That's one thing that I think Richard did really, really well in this. Um, it is still the idea of family in an isolated house, um, find something weird in their yard. In this case, it's their well. They're, they're kind of messing around in the well. And as they are having some repairs done, it kind of unleashes something. And all of a sudden, the landscape starts transforming. And all they have, um, they have alpacas. That becomes kind of the humor is they have alpacas on there um, that Nick Cage has determined is like their investment. Like they're going to make money off these alpacas that they're raising. And so those start transforming the entire landscape. The bugs start transforming and everyone starts going insane. Where it starts to get a little bit different is he tries to bring in elements from the town. Hmm. So like the mayor comes out to look Hmm. and they bring out the water commissioner. And there's a scientist who shows up at one point to try to figure out what's going on. And I don't know if it was me just going like, that's not true to Lovecraft. It has to just be a family by themselves. Or if that, you know, is something that, um, but it does feel like they they did try to update it in that because everyone does carry cell phones and they do respond like we would in normal every day of my water just turned pink. I should call someone about that or (laughs) all my, yeah. And so in that case, it does feel really updated. Yeah. Um, And the fact that people do have cell phones, the majority of the story is kind of posited, not inside of cage, um, even though that he is the one by far that goes kind of the most ballistic. Mm. Um, but it is the family's teenage girl mm. um, as she becomes kind of one of the last ones to kind of get uh, taken a hold of. And so we see the bulk of the movie through her eyes as she's mm. trying to figure out what's happening with her family and what's happening to the environment around her. That's cool. Um, yeah. So it's definitely, if you like Lovecraft in any capacity or just want to see Cage like punch a car, which he does in excess, um, <laughs> I highly recommend Color Out of Space, which is coming out in January. Um, I want I want to piggyback on that just to mention uh, a movie that's that's lesser known. It's a very small film from Germany mm-hmm. that's also based on the Colorado space. It's called Die Farb, um, which translates to The Farm. Mm-hmm. Um, this came out, 
a few years ago, I want to say like maybe 2005 or 2006. Um, it's, it definitely like shows its age and it shows its, um, its, its budget. Uh, but it's really interesting in that they, the whole film is in black and white, except for the color, which is purple. Um, which is sort of an interesting way to try to, I think, uh, uh, represent this color on screen. Um, and, you know, the, the, the film is okay, but I just think it's a really sort of interesting um, tactic of, of how an independent film with a, with a small budget, you know, can try to adapt sort of a big story like that. There's also one that Debbie Rashawn was in oh. um, probably 10 years ago. It would have been in the 2000s um, that I think it was an Italian filmmaker, but I was always really impressed with it too. It is very self-contained. Um, Debbie plays the mom in it, but it's small. Um, just the family on the farm yeah. and her going insane. But that was another one that I always thought was like, you know, four actors, one location, super small budget, but that they did it really, really well. Yeah. Um, so some of the other Lovecraftian projects that we need to mention. Do you have any others that you're like, hey, that was that was pretty good? Um, gosh, I mean, we've covered so many of them. Uh, uh, video games, we sort of touched on a little mm -hmm. bit. There's some great Lovecraftian video games out there. Um, I really love the most recent uh, Call of Cthulhu video game. It's called The Call of Cthulhu. Um, and it's uh, uh, they do a really good job of... of having this sort of impending madness as you are an investigator on this island uh, trying to figure out, like, what's happening. Um, and uh, uh, they just do a really good job of sort of translating that for the screen. Mm -hmm. So I recommend that. I, I think that actually a lot of the Lovecraftian uh, video games are pretty effective. I could see that because it is so much of like a first person concept yeah. for a lot of his stories. Um, I can see, and especially Call of Cthulhu and Innsmouth are both like that. Mm -hmm. I can see that translating well There's to a video one game. That just came out or is about to come out. I can't remember what it's called, which isn't helpful to anybody. Um, but but yeah, be on the lookout. I mean, I think there there uh, uh, there's some really good ones. And then of course we talked about the RPGs. The Call of Cthulhu RPG is really great. It's fun. Um, yeah. It's really fun, and and it it really uh, gets you into the the Lovecraftian spirit. And then I will say um, that there's a lot of um, uh, there's an author named. Help me out. He's the um, you know the sort of like main expert on Lovecraft. Uh, Oh, no. Um, oh, gosh. You talk. I'm going to look him up. Hold okay. On. So some of the other ones, while um, Graham looks up the author, I'm going to talk about a couple of the other ones that I'll recommend. 1993, we had Necronomicon Book of the Dead. And this oh, was... Yuzna. Right? Yuzna. Um, so this um, was an anthology-style story um, that has Jeffrey Combs in it. And it explores a couple of different stories from Lovecraft. It is Brian Yuzna and Screaming Mad George doing amazing effects in it. Um, this one is hard to find. I don't think it's ever had any type of DVD or Blu-ray release. If it has, it was incredibly limited. Um, so you'll have to break out your VHS player for this, but it is well worth it. Um, I, we mentioned Dunwich Horror Ahead from 1970. That's always one that I've really enjoyed. Um, the Creeping Terror is also in there. Um, the Haunted Palace from 1963. And then um, Bleeders from 1997. I can't call it a good movie, um, but I loved what it was trying to do because it is one of my favorite Lovecraftian stories. And I feel like there is a, a very good version of this that exists somewhere um, where a man um, has no idea where he's uh, kind of his background. He doesn't know anything about his parents, but he knows that he is from this weird island, this weird isolated island. And so he has got this genetic condition that has developed over time. And so in order to find some answers to what his weird genetic condition is, he decides to go back to this ancestral island that he is from and figure out what is going on. And then he gets there and discovers that he's from a race of weird mutant people. Um, and, and there's a lot more to it. But Bleeders um, from 1997, most people remember this as the VHS box cover that had the squishy cover. It was full of blood oh, and you could uh -huh. squish it and it had all the weird looking oh, monsters behind it. Lovecraft movie? That was the Lovecraft movie. Wild. Um, also okay. called, I think it was also called The Lurking Fear. It had like a second title to it. Yeah. Um, but huh. yeah, Bleeders was the one that most of us knew That's it cool. as. And Hemoglobin, Hemoglobin. Sorry, Hemoglobin. Lurking okay. Fear was a completely different movie. It was Hemoglobin was the second title. Um, but yeah, it's a Lovecraftian um, story. I can't say that that movie is great. It's kind of a super, super slow burn of a guy meandering around an island and then like a crazy scene at the end. 
recommend. Um, but yeah, it's still, it, if you're a Lovecraft purist, I definitely recommend nice, checking okay. it out. Um, I will also say 2007, there was a movie called Cthulhu. Yes. Which I actually enjoyed very small i did too but i liked the setup of it of this guy had moved away from his hometown because his parents were all in this weird fish cult and he also was gay and so he felt like he was being ridiculed for that he wasn't too into his their weird fish cult and so he moved away and then um, years and years later, he decides to go back home and see how his family is doing. And he still finds that they are involved in this fish cult, even more engaged. And more than that, they are preparing for something, the coming. Um, and so it's all about this town kind of preparing for something. There were parts of it that I really enjoyed. And I really enjoyed that it kind of infused um, this LGBT moments sure. within it and kind of the isolation of moving away from your family and feeling like you have no one else in the world except for these people who don't really understand you. I loved that they were able to infuse it into Lovecraft. I, I thought that it really did it justice. Yeah, I had forgotten about that movie. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. it's... it's uh, and I remember the trailer is really cool for yeah. me too. It's got um, some really good visuals in yeah. it, like singles, images, and it's got Tori Spelling. Oh, um, um, yeah, right. Who is, who's just one of the Weird Fishy Cult members. Yeah. Like oh. she's just in kind of um, a secondary character, but it's kind of weird to be watching it and just go, Tori Spelling? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Fishy Cult. Um, and then I also wanted to give... Um, a send out to Dreams of the Witch House yes. from Masters of Horror. Now, Dreams of the Witch House is one that I think is notoriously hard to convert to screen. It is about a witch who travels through time through weird architecture. <laughs> and she has a, um, a familiar, which is a rat with a human face. <laughs> None of this is things that translate well to screen because we, time traveling witch, immediately there, I'm like, that sounds silly. And then she's traveling through eaves and rooms and architecture and math angles and yeah. things like that. Like there's a lot of geometry that goes into the architecture that enables and in the her story, to time travel. And he's able to kind of like describe it well enough where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, super weird geometry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm into your super weird geometry, but then you're watching it and, and it just you're looks like, like a weird, like, like a parallelogram. Yeah. In the like she's just popping out of like a parallelogram <laughs> on the ceiling and things like that. And then the rat faced or the human faced rat shows yeah. up, which was some weird CGI back at the time. And when I rewatched this a couple of days ago, it's even weirder. It's a little now. silly, but it's also, it's also one of those things where, and again, this is another Stuart Gordon mm -hmm. project. Um, it, it's, uh, it's it's funny because like I, I feel like another filmmaker might have said like well that'll look too silly to have a rat with a human face but Stewart said no I mean it's a rat with We're a doing human it. face we're doing it and I think that's why it weirdly works because okay that's what it is and that's, that's honestly weird. the creepiest part in the movie like the time yeah. traveling witch didn't give me pause but as soon as the human faced rat enters the screen even now just watching it a couple days ago I was like okay that's that's a little off putting yeah um so it works this is another one that I've heard a lot of different people trying to get it off the ground for a hmm. feature Interesting. um so I'm in to see if anyone ever would and how they would approach it because the architecture is so important and it has to look unlike any architecture we've ever seen before. Yeah. Like, how do you visualize that? It's interesting that this would be the movie, you know, the, the story that people would want to adapt into a feature because mm -hmm. I feel like it's just not... It's it's not the, you know, the story I would go to. Nope, you know? me neither. It's, uh, it's interesting. And then um, before we kind of round out, uh, Scooby-Doo. Oh. There was a season of the cartoon a couple of years ago that I was not watching. My daughter started watching. And I absolutely loved how the whole season approached it. Because they approached it as the kids live in what is billed as the most haunted town in the world. But they know that it's all fake. It's all just like a tourist trap and everything's fake. But then they find these really creepy things happening in it. Lovecraft is actually a character in it wow. and the whole thing gets really Lovecrafty and Cthulhu comes into it and it's definitely aged up a little bit like this is something that my six-year-old was into but my three-year-old did not understand what was going on um it, it's just really well done and so I highly recommend um hunting that uh season down yeah, and I definitely finding will. it that's cool it was definitely aged up a good bit um but that said there's it, Lovecraft is fueled throughout it's like the it's the plot line that's cool. Um, 
Okay, I have uh, three things. Uh, so I looked up this guy. St. Okay, yes. I have one of his books. <laughs> yes, S. T. Joshi, uh-huh. J. O. S. H. I. He's like, if you want to know about Lovecraft's life, he's the guy to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written a whole bunch of books about him. He, I think, has a collection of Lovecraft's letters that he published. Um, he's he's uh, uh, just the world's foremost expert on Lovecraft. One thing I will say about S. T. Joshi is that he gets really prickly. When you, when anybody brings up Lovecraft's racism, like mm-hmm. we talked about, and and so he doesn't really talk about that in the work. I think he he idolizes Lovecraft a bit, um, and so he doesn't necessarily talk about like the negative things about him. But he is very knowledgeable. Everything you ever needed to know about Lovecraft, you can find there. Um, then two films I want to talk about. Um, uh, Clyde Barker in general is, I think, a very Lovecraftian writer. Yeah, um, and he's done a couple. He has. And and one of his uh, films that I think is maybe his most uh, Lovecraftian is The Midnight Meat Train. Yes, um, very Lovecraftian. Really, really, mythos. really fantastic movie uh, directed by Ruhe Kitamura. Um, and so I highly encourage people to go check that out. Um, and then finally, there's a movie that came out a couple years ago called Incident in the Ghostland. Um, by Pascal Logier, the mm-hmm. guy that did Martyrs. And in that film, uh, there is uh, one of the characters uh, is an aspiring writer, and uh, she periodically goes to this sort of happy place in her mind, and her happy place in her mind is talking to H.P. Lovecraft at a party. Oh, wow. Um, and so she has all these discussions with H.P. Lovecraft. The film itself is a you know a little bit problematic and there were apparently some like onset uh incidents and stuff that I think are are uh, part of that discussion uh mm-hmm. but um it's an interesting uh, I remember watching the film and I was like is she talking to Lovecraft right now um so that's just sort of an interesting Lovecraftian thing to sprinkle in if you want to be a completist nice well thank you so much for joining me today yeah, thank you. Excellent. This was really fun. um tell us where we can find you and any upcoming projects that you have uh, you can find me on twitter at graham skipper um my film sequence break uh is uh out on shutter uh so if you have shutter you should go check that out and then if you're in the la area um Periodically, I, I run a, a a horror pop-up bar party called Rated R. It's more like an experience. It's like an, exp- it's like an all-immersive experience with drinking and yeah. movies and all sorts of stuff. So, um, And I'm there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's really fun. And um, yeah, just, you know, I, I uh, have a film uh, that should be coming out on the festival circuit next year, which I'm excited about. Fantastic. Uh, that I acted in. And yeah. Um, so yeah, just put, come find me on Twitter, at Graham Skipper. I'm, I'm around. Thank you so much for joining us. Please continue to um, follow Nightmare University. You can find us on all the socials. And I'll also remind you again that we have the Patreon launching in just a couple of days. This will be launching right before January. And you can, um, by becoming a Patreon supporter, you can get um, our second podcast, Deep Cuts, where I will be diving into very specific, lesser known or rare or hard to find horror films twice a month so please support the show on patreon and get that extra show thank you so much everyone have a fantastic holiday and we will be back in two weeks after the new year thanks you know how to wake the dead you think you've heard the call you think you're an undead superstar man you think you know it all well you don't know nothing punk talking that saying to dab a jump let me show you what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Sonnier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safa-Vemer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Wynerdy, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.